0: Wow. Wow. Man, where else can you go to church where some dude in an Adrian Peterson jersey can lay down that kind of Hang on. And I've never even seen this guy before. What's your name, man? Chase. Chase? How about Chase today, man? I mean, that was cool. Thanks. Well done. Thank you for being here, Chase. I'm telling you, the culture is obsessed with heaven. That's why we're playing these songs before our services so that we can find out heaven is one part of the gospel that has escaped the church and has just prevailed in culture. The culture sings about it. They talk about it. They write about it. People want to know about heaven. But the question we've been asking all month at Journey Church International is, is heaven for real? And if it is, what is it like? What is it like? And if it is, how do we get there? And if it is, how do we make sure that other people go there? And all month long, we've been asking questions about heaven, and we continue to do that today. But let me, let me start out by talking uh, about our subject matter today with a little different illustration. My favorite place on planet Earth is Hawaii. And I don't know whether you've been to Hawaii or not, but it was on my bucket list to go to. Everyone in my life had been to Hawaii except for me about six years ago. My mom and dad had been there. Once I was married, they decided to take a family vacation with my sisters, but not me, to go there. My wife had been there when she was a kid. So, like, everyone that I knew had been to Hawaii but me. And it was on my bucket list. I always wanted to see the Rocky Mountains. I always wanted to go to Hawaii. So we, we set a date, and we said, man, we're going to save for that date. And we saved our money, and we booked a trip to Hawaii, and we went to Hawaii. And it is everything and more that you have ever imagined. I mean, I, I I often pray that God will call me to start a church in Hawaii because I'd like to live there the rest of my life. But one of my favorite things about Hawaii is what's not there. Um, and you say, well, what is there? Everything. I mean, it's a beautiful tropical paradise. You can surf. Uh, they actually have snow on the Big Island on a on a big mountain. I mean, they've they've got kind of the mini Grand Canyon. I mean, there's all kinds of things in Hawaii. But my least favorite thing in the world is not in Hawaii. It's one of the few places on planet Earth where they do not exist. And that's this. There are no snakes in Hawaii. You can look it up. You can read about it because it is separated from so many miles from any landmass. There are no snakes in Hawaii. And when you travel to Hawaii, they'll tell you you're not allowed to bring snakes here because there are no snakes in Hawaii and we don't want snakes. And I don't know about you, but I don't like snakes um, at all. Every now and then I'll flinch at a big worm. You know, I mean, I, I don't. Like snakes. I've got... You know, we back up to a creek, our backyard. So when I mow our yard, we've got these... I'm not even sure what they're called, but the, you know the, the thing, like when it rains in your house, on your house and you have the, like... What are the spouts called? The, the Yeah, whatever you... Do. Yeah, the gutters. Yeah, the rain goes into the gutters and it goes down. And then you get these things that lay on the ground that wash it out. Um, snakes and frogs and lizards like to hide under mine. And I, don't, I, guess, I guess I just don't like reptiles of any kind. Um, so every time I mow... I'll have to move those things. And usually there's a reptile under there that scares me. So if my neighbors, a couple of my neighbors, go, to, if they watch me, I will tentatively, I mean, very tentatively approach every time i mow my yard, you know, and I'll kind of kick. And, and sometimes I'll put gloves on and I always flip it over backwards because I know if I flip it over forward that they're just going to grab my arm and kill me. Um, and mind you, I mean, these snakes are like they're like that big. But a snake is a snake. Whether it's six inches or six feet, it's a snake. Um, you know, so I, I very tentatively move. I, I don't like snakes. So when I went to Hawaii and I found out there were no snakes, and you can, you can go up in the, the rainforest and you can mountain hike, and it's like I never thought once about snakes. One reason I love Hawaii is because of what's not there. The Bible talks a lot about heaven. The Bible talks a lot, and we studied a lot about what is in heaven. But do you know the Bible specifically talks about what's not in heaven as well? That's going to be the content of our Bible study today. What's not in heaven? If you have your Bible, we're going to go to Revelation 21. That's where we've been living for the past few weeks as we studied about heaven. If you don't have your Bible, ushers are going to go down the aisle. They're going to pass out Bibles. We've given away more than 300 Bibles in the last almost year at our church. If you forgot a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, if you just want to follow along, raise your hand. They'll give it to you. If you don't have a Bible like you know where it is, keep this. Put your name on the inside. It's yours to keep Go home and start reading it. It'll be great for you. By the way, let me ask you this question, because I was at a church. uh, I was at a church planning conference this week in South Carolina. How many of you, when you come to church, you use a Bible on your phone or like an iPad rather than a real Bible? Just hold it up. If you use it like a non-traditional Bible, just hold it up. Yeah, so a lot more than half the people at the conference didn't use a real Bible anymore I'm, just saying this to let you know you can download a Bible app on your phone You can bring an iPad It doesn't matter how you have the word only that you hold it that you read it that you have access to it So if you're not a Bible person, but you're a phone person get it on your smartphone Bring your iPad have a copy of the Bible where you can get it. You can read it You can learn it and today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21 We're only going to read one verse, but this one verse tells us what's not in heaven and we're going to read it in the english and then we're going to, going to kind of kind of break it down a little bit in, in What really is not in heaven so we can hopefully today be motivated not only to go there But to take others with us in john chapter 21 verse 4 Here's what the bible says about what's not in heaven. It says he that's god God will wipe every tear from their eyes And there will be no more death No more mourning No more crying And no more pain For the old order of things has passed away. Let me say that to you one more time. Four things that aren't in heaven. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, number one. No more mourning, number two. No more crying, number three. No more pain, number four. For the old order of things has passed away. What's not in heaven? Four things according to the Bible. Four things that are extremely present on planet earth. That one day when we get to heaven, they won't be there. And these are all like big amen issues that these things are not in heaven. It's a big deal that these aren't in heaven. Number one, the Bible said in heaven, there is no more death. There's no more death. And man, that is a big deal. Because you know what? When death is personal, and I want you to hear how I say that. When death is personal, it's a big deal. Uh, I'm sure all of us in here can remember the first time we personally dealt with death. The first funeral that I ever went to, the first death that I ever dealt with personally was a friend of mine. When I was in seventh grade, uh, I had two brothers that, that I often hung out with after school. One of them was a grade below me. His name was Josh. One of them was two grades ahead of me. His name was Joel. When I was in seventh grade, Joel, who was a freshman, one of my friends on Thanksgiving Day, took a shotgun and put it in his mouth and he killed himself. It was the first funeral that I ever attended. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. Death when it's personal is horrible. Uh, and I remember Joel played football for my dad. My dad was a football coach. Um, Joel was a, he was a special needs kid, but like one of the greatest special needs kids that you'd ever know. Like everyone in the school loved him, had the best attitude. And as an equipment manager, I was in seventh grade, but I was, my, I was the ball boy on my dad's team. And at practice, I would play with Joel. Joel wasn't physically able to like, he wasn't able to be hit he wasn't able to go in games, but he was on the team. He had a uniform. Uh, he had pads. And at practice, I would play with Joel. Uh, Joel and I would be on the sideline. He'd run pass routes. I'd throw it to him. Uh, so at, at his funeral, the whole, I remember my dad's whole football team was there. I was only in middle school. And everyone wore their jerseys. I, can, I mean, I can remember I, I was, had to be 12 or 13. I remember it like it was yesterday. If I, if I was artistic, I could draw it. Um, I remember where I sat. I remember Eric Miller, who sat in front of me, uh, number 88, his jersey. I am looking at the back of his jersey the whole time. Um, I remember my dad speaking and some of the football players speaking and I remember as we walked out I'd never been to a funeral before Um, and they had you know, like many funeral services do they had joel's casket Uh at the foot of the pulpit during the funeral and they took it out and they let everyone go out Uh, and and they as we left they had an open casket for joel I'd never been to a funeral. I didn't I didn't know that this is what you experienced as a seventh grader And they had an open casket funeral on someone who had committed suicide and they did not do a very good job um, on Joel. It it was not the Joel that I remembered. And I, I mean, I can close my eyes and see it in my head round in that little corner at that church and seeing Joel laying in that casket. And for weeks not even being able to sleep because I was just so shaken in my soul by death. I'm one of those guys, maybe you're like me, like I, I have to sleep with a body part hanging out of the sheets. Is anyone is anyone like that? Like, you know, I'm not a cocoon sleeper. Like the first thing I do when I go get in bed is I just rip all the sheets out because if my le- if my right leg isn't sticking out of the sheet, I may suffocate and die. I'm just I'm just sure of that in my head. Like, you know, I've got, if my right leg, I mean, I just can't sleep if, if, I, if I don't have air on my right foot for some reason. Um, but that, that's beside the point. But I remember for weeks and months, I remember for several weeks as a 7th grader sleeping in my mom and dad's room. I was so disturbed. And then I remember for months being afraid of, of like, having my arm or my leg hanging out of the bed. Because every time I closed my eyes, all I could see was Joel laying in his casket. Shook me up. Bad shook me up bad death when it's personal is bad but you know death isn't always personal in our society you know as, as a pastor you deal with death uh, more than you want to and I'll never forget I, I'd been in ministry two or three years I was a youth pastor at a church and someone called up the church and, and they, they were someone who had been there years before and they said hey uh, grandma died and she didn't live in town but like, we don't have a pastor to do the funeral can you send someone to do the funeral and I was the only guy at church that day. So they're like, Christian, uh, we got a call. You need to go do a funeral. And, like, my only experience with caskets and funerals was Joel. And I was like, I can't do a funeral. And they're like, well, you're the only pastor here. And we told him, yeah, you got to do a funeral. So I called one of my mentors, and I was like, i got to do a funeral. Like, wh- like what, do I, what, what do I got to do? i got to do a funeral. And they're like, listen, just put a suit on, get your Bible. You know, they'll give you information on the person who died. you want to read that. And then just preach on Jesus, talk about heaven, you know, it'll be okay. And I was like, well, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I can, if I can see a dead body. Like, what if I pass out or something? And they're like, listen, you know, you're not, not going to have to be anywhere near the body. You're just going to be the pastor. You're going to have a little podium. You're going to stand. Everything will be okay. It's like, okay. So I calm myself down, you know, a deep breath, in and out, get to the funeral home. Meet the funeral home director. Hey, I'm Christian. I'm here for... Uh, so and so's funeral and he said, Okay. Uh, and uh, I said, now where do you like where like where do I speak from? And he said, the family has requested that you speak from behind the coffin. And I was like what, uh, uh, what, you, what like what? What do you like what? What do you mean? It's like well where will my stand be? He said, Well you can just lay your notes right there on the coffin. And I was like, dude, you know, I don't think I can do that. But, but, you know, it, it was shut, and I thought, you know, okay I, I can do this, tell them about Jesus. So I meet the family, go use the bathroom, come back to get ready to preach, and the son has requested that the coffin be open during the message. So here I am, my first ever funeral. This is the first funeral I've been to since my friend Joel's. And I am literally, I have my Bible laying on the casket next to Dorothy, was her name, who's right here. Thing up just watching me, you know, <laughs> right? And it's like, I'm sure that was the worst message that I'd ever preached in my life, because the whole time I had one eye on my Bible and one eye on her, making sure like she wasn't going to grab me or something. <laughs> like halfway through my message, a fly landed on her. I swear to God. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, do I get it off? <laughs> do I leave it? Is it inappropriate to smack a dead woman? <laughs> Do I blow on the fly? Do I nudge the casket with my knee? Would that knock the casket over? Would she then fall out of the casket? I mean, this is this is like what's going through my head. You know, and it's funny. Death, when it's personal, death when it's personal is horrible. But we live in a world where death is so much a part of the world. Truth is, we don't, we don't, Most of the time, it doesn't even get our attention. Last night, I got online to check the score of the Royals game. I always check to see how the Royals did before I went to bed. I'm a big baseball fan. Um, And I skimmed past, just because I was focused on this message, two things. You know, apparently some Lee Summit lawyer was indicted for killing her husband. um, And there was a wreck yesterday somewhere where someone died up around Parkville. And as I was scrolling to see the Royals, those two articles, the headlines that someone had died, they didn't even get my attention. Saw them, skinned over them, didn't even stop to read and went to the Royals score. Because we live in a world where we've just adjusted ourselves to death. And it's normal. It's normal until it's personal. And then when it's personal, it's devastating. And all of us have walked through the personal and impersonal moments of death. But the Bible says in heaven, thank God, there's no more death. There's no more of my friends. There's no more of your friends. There's no more of my family members. There's no more your family members. There's no more funerals. There's no more funeral homes. There's no more coffins. There's no more caskets. There's no good jobs versus bad jobs. There's no death in heaven. That's someplace I want to go. Some place where there's no death. The Bible says in heaven that there's no mourning. But the, the mourning is, is not the best English word to convey what the author of Revelation, John, in John 21 is trying to write. The, the word really is sorrow or even a better translation is the word grief. There's no more grief in heaven. And let me translate that even, even a little deeper for you. Webster's dictionary defines grief as deep and powerful distress. Grief is something that bothers you, grief is a heaviness, grief is something that you're not sure if you'll ever get over, grief is something that lives deep. Within your soul, and sometimes you're the only one who knows that it's there, but it's like a rock in your shoe. Have you ever had a rock in your shoe where, like, every now and then you'll step just right, and that rock has been in your shoe for a while, but you only feel it when you step just right and you land on that rock? You can tell that it's there. Some of us have rocks in our souls, and we don't think about them every day, and we don't think about them every week. But when we do think about them, they hurt, and they hurt deeply, deep and powerful distress. In Psalm 13:2, David said this about his distress, and I, I find myself so much like David in Psalm 13:2. David asked God, "How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, and day after day have sorrow in my heart? God, how long do I have to mentally?" feel bad about these things in my life. God, how long does the grief hang on? You know, I watched as as I was watching the Olympics, I watched a little bit of Olympic wrestling. Have you ever watched Olympic wrestling or MMA fighting where these guys literally try to rip each other's arms and legs off? I mean, it is insane. And I, I watched the wrestling event. And as I read this verse and I saw this word, wrestle with my thoughts, I thought, you know what? I bet I could be an Olympic champion thought wrestler. I bet I could, like maybe even a heavyweight Olympic champion thought wrestler. Because sometimes I battle my life, my past, my faults, my failures. I battle them in my head and it gives me grief, gives me sorrow in my life. And sometimes I feel like David is like, God, how long until I can just be over, you know, who I was or what I did or. The flaws that exist within me or the fear I have to move forward or the things I've done wrong. God, you know, how long till I can get over those? You know, that grief that lives in my soul. You know, I I met with someone last week and was just talking to him about Christian life. And I told him how much, you know, as a pastor, how much shame that I have over who I used to be. And the things that I used to do and i'm not just talking about when I was a teenager and when I was in college Even my first decade in ministry when I didn't really know how to do ministry and when I didn't Know how to treat people and when I didn't know how to care about people I just, I, You know, I don't know about you, but i'm ashamed of a lot of my past If I could do it again, I would not do it the same way I carry a lot of grief in my heart and in and in my soul And a few years ago I had I had a um, I had an opportunity to go back to my hometown. I, I was born and raised in Ohio uh, and had an opportunity to, to go back to Ohio, to, to my home church, to speak at a men's deal. It had really been about 10 years since I'd been back. When I left Ohio, uh, I left to go play college football, and I never went home. Never went home for a summer. By the time I got married, my mom and dad had moved. So I, I mean, I literally, I had never gone home. So it had been 10 years since I'd really seen any friends, uh, any old teammates, any old people that I used to work with. I mean, it had been a decade. And they brought me back to speak at a men's conference. So when I left, I was, if you can pick, if you can remember who you were as a senior in high school, when I left, I was that guy. And a decade later, I came back and now I'm a pastor, which is confusing enough for a lot of people who were sitting in the seats. But I spoke and I just talked about how God had transformed my heart over the last decade. And I looked out and man, I had, you know teammates out there and I had people that I used to play against and I had coaches that used to coach against my dad and I had men who used to be in the church And my old youth pastor was out there and some of my sunday school teachers were there And I you know, I started just getting a little proud in my heart of you know, look God has brought me full circle. I left. I was an idiot. God has brought me back I'm now ministering to these guys and I began to think about you know, man, I you know Look look what god has done in me. Look how god is using me And it was cool with some people who became christians with some men that rededicated their lives. One of the coolest stories, a a guy who who used to play for my dad when I was like the fourth and fifth and sixth grade manager of the football team. He was like my hero uh, who had played for my dad. You know, I was a guy like I'd always have his water and carry his towel. And like he was my hero. He rededicated his life that night, came up to me. I was like, man, this is like the coolest experience ever. And I'm talking to all these people about these decisions that they've made. And a guy was there. And he was the guy, you guys had this in high school, he was the guy who was the dad of the home where we used to go to do bad things in high school. Y'all remember that house where we used to go debauch? Is that like the correct verb of debauchery? You know, we used to go to sin, we used to go to do stupid things. That that was kind of his place, and he was there. And he was sitting through the whole thing, and he heard my whole message. And I'm talking to these guys, uh, and as he's coming up, I'm looking at him, and I'm remembering not who I am, but who I was. And I'm getting nervous as he comes over. And in this big crowd of guys that I just preached to, he comes up and gives me a hug. Christian, man, remember what you and the guys used to do when you used to come over to my house? And I was like, yeah, you know, thanks for, you know, pointing that out. He's like, remember the, the hot tub? And I was like, you know, we probably shouldn't talk about that in church, um, said this guy's name. And, you, you know, some of you are like, you know, Pastor Christian, you did, you did that too in a hot tub? I don't know what you're referring to, but probably. Um, yeah, I, you know, we, we, I grew up in the 90s listening to Shine and stuff like that. And I remember just shrinking into a shell thinking I should not be preaching. I should not be ministering because I am who I used to be. And who I used to be, I'm ashamed of that person. I did a lot of stupid things. I let a lot of people astray. I, you know, I did a lot of things that Christians shouldn't do that just good people Shouldn't do. And every now and then I wrestle in my soul with that. In Isaiah 9 6, thank goodness, Isaiah describes Jesus coming as someone who would comfort our grief. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Why? Because he'll be able to walk you through some of the stupidity, some of the debauchery. Isaiah 25 8, the sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and he'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Because the Lord has spoken, man. That word "disgrace" is a powerful word. I, I have things that are disgraces in my life. Isaiah thirty-five ten. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Do you, do you know that that heart feeling of the sigh? It's this. Have you ever, after a long day or after a bad memory, sat down in your car or in your house and just done this? <sighs> you ever done that? That's grief. Why don't we have everybody do that right now? Just sigh. There'll be no more of that in heaven. No more of that. Oh, Lord. You know, some of you hold on to grief that no one else knows about but you. Some of you live in anguish about your first marriage. And and I, I think about those of you in our church who when your first anniversary comes of the failed marriage, like you're the only one in your life that day who remembers that that calendar day is a symbol of grief for you the men and women who, in our church who have lost jobs, that you'll be, you'll be riding to a Chiefs game, a World's game, you'll be going to the movies, you'll be going in, out to eat, and you'll, you'll be in a car full of people and you drive past the gas station where you used to get gas before you lost your job or you drive past the place that you used to work before you got fired and you're the only one in the vehicle, as everyone's laughing it up, thinking it up, that as you drive by there, that rock in your soul reminds you that you're hurting. You're the only one who remembers the date that you had the miscarriage or that one of your kids got arrested or you found out your spouse was having an affair or your mom or dad passed away. You're the only one who on those days you wake up and man, the grief is real and it's heavy and you're like David, like God, when, like what year will I wake up and this date doesn't mean anything anymore? God, when will I drive by and not even recognize that place? Lord, when will I be able to see these people? When will I be able to pass that cemetery? When, 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 Lord, when David said, "When will the grief go away?" Heaven—that's what the Bible says. There's no more grief in heaven. Thank God. The Bible says that in heaven, there's no more crying. Which is really interesting because three of these terms allude to what we would allude to as crying—wipe tears from their face. Tears clearly are crying. Morning, we would think of as crying. Crying, we would think of as crying. But the real word here is outcry. That's the word. And, and it's the thought of crying out. It's 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 the thought of justice. It's the thought of when is everything going to be fixed. This this word crying means this. It's it's the word of a public herald in like 17th century England, coming to the town square and saying, Hear ye, hear ye. And like everyone stops. It's like, I got an important message. That's the thought of crying. The thought of crying. When will we stop? When will we stop, Lord, noticing how thing, how broken things are? And when will we stop crying out for justice? You You know what reminds me of this the most? The last two weeks in Tampa... The Republicans had the Republican National Conference Committee, whatever. Last week in Charlotte, the Democrats had the Democratic National Convention. And you know what I heard? I heard a lot of cries. Uh, I, I heard a lot of outcries, public notices. This is wrong, but if you're like me, I'll fix it. And this is wrong, but if you elect me, I'll fix it. And he's wrong, so I'd never elect him. And he's wrong, and he's the devil, and he's the devil. And if you listen to both, and if you believe any of them, you're like, maybe we should vote for nobody. A lot of crying out. A lot of saying, God, when is everything not going to be broken anymore? You know what I do when I listen to the Republican National Convention, and when I listen to the Democratic National Convention, you know what I do? I go back to the Bible and say, God, these guys don't know what they're talking about, so what do you say? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. When? Until heaven. They're always going to be there. Figure out a way to deal with them, to love them. The Bible says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars until the end of the earth. So the guy that says, there's going to be no more war. Well, that's not what the Bible says. And I listen to everyone and I just think, you know what? Jesus, just come back and fix it. Because there ain't a politician alive who's going to fix the world until Jesus comes. According to The Bible. Now, government's important. Politics are important. I'll vote. Every Christian should vote. You should vote with your heart. You should vote with your mind. I I get all that. But if you're expecting a politician to fix you and your life, it's not going to happen. Only Jesus brings clear justice. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the world's going to continue to just spin out of control until the Prince of Peace comes and puts it all back together. So the Bible says that there's no more outcries. Now you say, Christian, why why do you believe the Bible? That's too long of an answer to give right now. But this Friday night, we're having a service at our church. I I think we handed you a little card when you walked in. We call it the well. If you're not doing anything this Friday night, for three hours I'm going to be teaching. Because that's that's probably how long it's going to take with a little worship mixed in. I'm going to be teaching on why you can trust the Bible. You hear me make statements like the Bible says. And the, you know, the Bible says this and, you know, the president said this and Governor Romney said this. But the Bible says that, you know, what gives the Bible credibility? I'm going to I'm going to teach you that. You know, we have people who come to our church and they come all the time who have not yet given their life to Jesus. They're just watching. And we're, we're glad that you're here. And there are some of you, you don't believe the Bible, but you hear me say the Bible says the Bible says. And you're thinking, why do you put so much faith in the Bible? I'll tell you if you'll come Friday night. So I want to encourage you. If you don't have like earth shattering plans, Friday night, join us and I'll teach you why I believe you can trust the Bible and why I can say with confidence, hey, regardless of what X, Y or Z says, the Bible says this and I'll teach you why I put confidence in it. But the Bible says that there won't be any more outcry in Psalm one nineteen eighty four. David asked this question, how long must your servant wait? How long do I have to wait until things get fixed, God? Is it this election? Is it 2016? Is it 2020? Is it a Democrat? Is it a Republican? Is it a Libertarian? Lord, like when's it going to get fixed? How long? That's the question. How long? And the Bible says in heaven. In heaven. You see, in heaven, wrongs will finally be made right. In heaven, wrongs will finally be made right. The people who have wronged you. The people who have wronged our country. The people who have wronged our society. The people who have wronged the, the, the hurting and the helpless. In heaven, all that's going to be figured out. In heaven, wrong will be made right. But but you say, well, what about Christians? I used to think about this all the time. What about Christians who have wronged me that I don't like? Like, am I going to have to see them in heaven? Like, i got some Christian people in my life. Like, if I saw them walking down they out at the grocery store. I'd go the other way. I have some Christians I don't like, you know, like, are they going to be in heaven or will they live in a different area you know, in heaven, are they going to apologize? Here's what the Bible says. In heaven, wrongs will be made right. But in heaven, hearts will be made right. Which means this, you're going to get over it. You see, while they're racing to say, finally, I'm so sorry for how I treated you. I'm so sorry for what went on. I'm so sorry that this happened. While they're still on the way to do that, you're going to see them coming and say, you know what? Don't even worry about it. It's not a big deal anymore. You see, in heaven, hearts will be made right. Luke 20, Luke six twenty eight through 30, Jesus gives us the picture of a Christian heart that's made right. And he said, you'll bless those who curse you. You'll pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, you'll turn the other also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. You see, in, in heaven, when we live with perfect Christian hearts, it all gets sorted out. That happens in heaven, Because in heaven there's no outcry against the justice that was failed to be done But man, that's hard. That's like that's like a hard message to take, right? You know on monday mornings I have a little monday morning routine that I do normally. I, I don't today, but normally uh, I leave my house between 6:30 and 7 I get to church. I set up I try always to have lunch with someone from the church either a new leader or a new couple or a new christian just to talk to them and then I'll go home for an hour, and then usually I'll change, and I've got youth ministry or some kind of leadership deal or something. Usually Sunday for me is a 14- to 15-hour day. Leave my house around 6.30, I'll get home around 9 or 9.30. It's a long, long day. So Monday, I just the first part of the day, I just decompress. And the first thing I do every Monday morning is I get up and I read an article called Monday Morning Quarterback on Sports Illustrated.com that uh, Peter King writes about kind of the weekend in the NFL. It's just what I do to decompress my mind. And he wrote last week about a, a guy that there's a backup quarterback in the NFL that I'm sure you've not heard of because he's a backup, he didn't even start, but his name is Tim Tebow. Um, maybe you've heard of him. Um, and Peter King, who I don't, I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know. He, he doesn't present as one, but I don't know. But he talked about the respect that he had for Tim Tebow because of an encounter last week that happened with Boomer Esiason. Boomer Esiason was a guy who used to play quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals and then for the New York Jets, and he's kind of a talking head now on CBS And he was sounding off on Tim Tebow. Somebody asked him in an interview. um, He said, what do you think the Jets should do with Tim Tebow? And here's what Boomer Esiason says. I'm quoting now. Cut Tim Tebow. I'm telling you right now, I would cut him. And I'll tell you why I would. All you have to do is watch him throw the ball, said Esiason. Just watch him. You can say whatever you want about Tim Tebow. He played some of the worst football that any quarterback has ever played in the history of the game last year at times. That's what he said about Tim Tebow. And then last week he was covering Jets camp and he had to interview Tim Tebow. And as Tim Tebow came up on the set, you can imagine the shame, talk about shame, that Esiason felt. And Esiason's first words when Tebow sat down, Esiason said to Tebow, you probably want to punch me in the face, don't you? And Tebow answered back, I've heard nothing but good things about you, Mr. Esiason. God bless you. Now, I would have punched him in the face. (laughs) But but that's just me. Um, If Tim were my brother or my friend... I would have punched him in the face. But that's just me. If Tim were my son, I would have ripped his throat out. And then I'd have preached his funeral from right behind his casket while like, eating a cheeseburger and wouldn't have thought twice about it. Right? Like, you don't talk about my friends that way. You say, how does he do this? How does someone do that? How does someone turn the other cheek? How does someone not demand justice? Someone, Proverbs 19.11. He's trying to live his life like he's already in heaven. A person's wisdom yields patience. And it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. That's what Peter King was saying. I've never seen someone who's attacked so ferociously, react so kindly. And it's like he's saying, there's something different about this kid. Yes, there is. And then the Bible says, number four, that in heaven there's no more pain. There's no more pain. Psalms 6, 2, and 3, I love what David says. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm faint. Here's what David said. I'm tired. Last night, I finished reading my Bible, and I always make notes in my Bible. And last night, the last thing I wrote in my Bible before I went to bed, and I got in bed last night at like 8.30. 30. Last thing I wrote in my Bible before I went to bed, I said, Lord, help me tomorrow. I'm tired. You know, this week on Tuesday night, I left my house about 9 p.m. I got up at 5 a.m. on Wednesday, and I flew to Anderson, South Carolina, and I was in a conference at Anderson, South Carolina. From 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., eight speakers every hour on the hour, and then I had to get up the next morning at 4 a.m. to catch a flight back through Chicago, back to here, get in my car at the airport, drive down to Branson for a marriage retreat that Danielle and I went to to just strengthen our marriage a little bit, and then get up the next morning again at 5 a.m. to drive back for Christian's football game. And by the time I got home last night, like I was tired, I was blitzed, I was tired. I was like, Lord, I like I don't even know if I can preach tomorrow. I'm tired. I pray, Lord, help me. This is what David is saying here. Have mercy on me, Lord, I'm tired. Man, do you ever have these moments where you're like, I just can't get up tomorrow. i just tired. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm tired. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long? Lord, how long? Man, how long is it going to be like this? Man, as I stand here today, there are people in physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain mental pain, probably a lot of us going through financial pain, employment pains, marriage pains, parenting pains, and on and on and on, right? We could probably just keep going. And you know, as, as we talk about what the Bible says, there are some people here that the biggest pain in their rear is religious people. You know, I, I, I told you, I, I've, I've just been finding out, you know, we, I've been pastoring this church about a year now, and I'm finding out we have people who come to our church every week who are not yet Christians, but they're curates. And the reason they're not yet Christians is because some religious idiot at some point in time turned them off. I need you to know, we're not trying to be religious at this church. We're trying to be Christians. We're not perfect, but we love Jesus. Or at least we're trying to love Jesus better. But whatever has caused your pain in heaven... The Bible says it'll be gone. Now we get to the end of this message and you know what? It's it's kind of somber. It's like, Christian, like you just said everything is broken and it won't be fixed until we die. Thank you for the encouragement. Where's the chips and salsa? It's like, you know, this is the most miserable message in the history of the world. Like you just said people are going to keep dying and crying and there's no justice and everybody's going to be in pain. And it's like, just deal with it till heaven. That's not what i'm saying the bible actually says that jesus can step into every one of those issues death sorrow crying pain every one of them and he can give reprieve now maybe not perfect reprieve but he can certainly make it better than it is in john 10 10 here's what the bible says the thief which the bible refers to as satan comes only to kill steal kill and destroy this isn't on a screen forgive me But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more fully. There's a great church three miles from here, Abundant Life Baptist Church. It's the largest, most influential church in our city. The name Abundant Life came from this verse in the King James Version. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus says, I can help your life now. You don't have to wait till heaven. I can help your life now. Death, I can give you comfort. Mourning, I can, I can give you forgiveness so you don't carry that grief. Outcry, I can help you understand what's your part to be done and what will later be fixed one day. Pain, I can ease your pain. And my goal for the second year of our church, if you say, Christian, well, you know we're, we're almost through a year. What's the goal for year two? It's this. We have two options at our church if we want to move past death, mourning, sorrow and pain two options option number one we can die i don't know about you i'll take option number two before i even hear it option two we can grow closer to jesus and he'll take the edge off of all those things so how do we grow closer to jesus three ways i believe that we want to focus on this year at our church number one it's my goal that everyone in our church this year grows in their passion for jesus and musicians, you can come on up here. It's my goal that everyone gets more passionate about Jesus, that you spend more time trying to figure out how to move spirit, move forward spiritually. You read the Bible more, and you spend more time in church, and you learn how to loosen up a little bit during worship. And, it, you know, it's okay to sing and sing loud, even if it's off-key. And, you know, maybe raise your hands, or if you're a Baptist, just hold them out. You know, I mean, all those things are cool. You, you know, you can do all those. Um, you know, if you're, you know, kind of old school, you can just... You close your eyes and look up is whatever moves you forward spiritually It's my goal this year that everyone in our church sees growth spiritually That from where you are spiritually you take at least one step forward In our next series our next preaching series called spiritual drought It's all about going from where you are to where you need to go We're putting together a 12-step plan for if i'm a christian anywhere on this On this uh, line you can find yourself And figure out what your next step is spiritually Because I want to see everyone grow spiritually This year and then it's my goal that everyone In our church develops more Christian friendships Because if if our options are to Die or to get Closer to Jesus I want to get closer to Jesus How do I get more closer How, how do I get closer To Jesus Christian more passion Spiritual growth More friendship with Christian people Now I don't know about you but that to me is a better option this year than dying. We might not eliminate death and pain and mourning and sorrow, but we can certainly dumb it down in our life by growing spiritually. Jesus in John eleven twenty six, we say, you know, Christian, death is a problem. But Jesus said in John eleven twenty six, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? See, if we're real Christians, if we've really given our heart to Jesus, even when our best friends lay in a coffin in a service, we look at that coffin and think, they're with Jesus. They're not there. They're with Jesus. We just have to train our minds to believe that. Second Corinthians 5.8 says, We're confident, yes, well pleased, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is an afterlife. Death doesn't hold us here. Matthew 11.28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Those of you who live with that rock of grief in your heart, and you wonder when those days and those places and those times won't hurt so bad, Jesus says, You come closer to me, and I'll, I'll help ease that burden. In Psalm 56.8, we talk about the outcry. God, when will it get better? The psalmist says, you number my wonderings. You put my tears into a bottle. Are they not in your book? God cares about the things you care about. Jesus says, I'm looking down and I'm trying. As much as I can do through my church and through my people, I'm trying to fix these. And then Psalm 34.18, when we talk about uh, pain. Psalm 34.18 says, the Lord is close to those who are broken hearted. If you're hurting today, God says, I'm closer to you than I am to someone who's not hurting. So I to make sure you're okay. You see, the answer is Jesus. The answer for you is who is it? The answer for you is who? The answer for your friends is who? See, today's important for you because you're hearing and you're understanding. In two weeks, we'll have what we're calling Harvest Sunday. We're asking for everyone in our church to bring a friend that might not know Jesus. Why? Because we believe he's the answer to the hurts in life. We, we passed out a card last week. We put it in again this week. This says uh, Harvest Sunday on it. It's got a little blank on the back. And we ask everyone in our church, write down the name of one person that you're going to start praying for. You're going to bring on September 23. We're asking everyone to bring a friend or a family September 23. Why? Because we believe Jesus is the answer. Just one person that needs jesus we can't force them down the throat but we can show them who he is and let them make their own decision would you help our world hear about what's his name jesus by bringing someone to church now that's two weeks from now we'll deal with that in two weeks today it's about you and jesus no more death no more mourning no more sorrow no more pain it's a place i want to go do you know that you're going there Are you solidified in your heart and your mind that when you leave this earth, you're going to go to heaven? Are you as close to Jesus as you need to be? Do you need to recommit your life to him today because you have no passion, no growth, and very few Christian friendships, if any? You can do that right now through prayer. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. We will be home in time for kickoff today if you live within 10 minutes of the church. If not, listen to it on the radio. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. God, we come to you in Jesus' name. Because he's the answer Death, pain, sorrow, mourning He's the answer and God, we know one day in heaven All those things are going to be gone And that's awesome But we want those things At least buffered in our life now And Jesus is the answer So God, I pray for the men, the women The teenagers in this room today Who today need to give their lives And their hearts to Jesus Heaven is a wonderful place It's open for us The tickets are free we don't have to pay anything because Jesus already paid our admission. He died for our sins. We just have to know that, confess that, and accept your gifts with every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're in the room today, you've never made peace with God. Maybe you're one of those who's just been watching, trying to figure out if we're for real or not, figure out if you can trust this thing called Christianity. Maybe today's the day you give your life to Jesus. Maybe the day is the day you recommit your life. Like you think one day you pray to prayer, but there's no passion, no growth, no friendship. And Jesus is saying today, get back on board. If either one of those is true of you today, I want you to pray this prayer. You don't have to say it out loud. Just pray it in your heart. The God of heaven is listening. Dear God, today I need Jesus to forgive me of my sins, to come into my heart and life, to save me for eternity, to give me heaven one day, to change my life from the inside out. Today, God, I admit that I am not perfect, but I am willing to follow you to try hard doing that. Today, I give you my life. Today, I recommit my life. Save me and change me. Put me on the right path. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you just prayed that prayer, please, nobody looking around in this moment. But if you just prayed that prayer and today gave your life to Jesus or recommitted your life to Jesus, would you just hold your hand up for a second and leave it in the air for just a second? Yes. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. Yes. Anybody else? Christian, I just prayed. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Anybody else? Now, if you raised your hand, just a minute, we're going to end this prayer. I'm going to ask everyone in here, Take their connection cards. You will not look weird reaching for yours because everyone's going to grab it just to give let us know they're here. But if you made a spiritual decision today, if you're one of the students who made a spiritual decision this morning in our youth group, I want you to put your name on that card and say, Christian, here's today the decision that I made. So I can call you this week, see if you have any questions, and just start helping you in your faith. Now, God, we love you. We need you. Today, comfort. Comfort the hurt that won't go away till we get into eternity, but it can be comforted here. And God, I pray for all the names that people have written on the backs of cards representing people they're going to try to invite to church to hear about Jesus on September 23rd. God, I pray that on that day our whole church will sit back and just say, wow, look at what God has done. The names on those cards make their hearts soft to hear about Jesus and to respond. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said, "Amen." Ushers, I'm gonna.